long had an eviction crisis and housing insecurity crisis, and so there's much that needs to be done. People are being forced out of their houses, that there are so many illegal evictions, there's illegal rent increases, and that there's this tension between what is home for a tenant and what is a financial asset for someone else. If, in fact, in more moderate income society, bank branches are one per 5,000, but in South LA, it's one per 600,000, in East LA, one per 650, what are we doing? Welcome to Securing Justice a podcast series created by the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, at Cal Poly Pomona, and generously supported by California Humanities. This is the eighth and final episode in our series, which focuses on housing and security in California. My name is Brady Collins, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Cal Poly Pomona, and Faculty Fellow with CCEP. Because it is our final episode, we wanted to offer something special. CCEP recently hosted Beto Arcos, who is a journalist and storyteller, to recite three stories at the intersection of housing and music. If you've been listening to this podcast all season, these stories bridge many of the themes we've already explored, such as identity, adversity, and the importance of community building. A native of Chalapa in Veracruz, Mexico, Beto now lives in Los Angeles, where he is a frequent contributor to KPCC and PRX Radio. He is also the author of Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. Please check the show notes for links to more of Beto's work. On behalf of everyone at CCEP, I'd like to thank you for listening to Securing Justice. And stay tuned. Our next season of the podcast, which will be released in spring of 2022, focuses on climate justice, an equally pressing issue for California. You won't want to miss it. We ask that if you like what you hear, if you care about these issues, Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast app. This helps other people find the show. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to Securing Justice, a housing insecurity podcast series brought to you by the California Center for Ethics and Policy in the College of Letters, Arts, and Social Sciences at Cal Poly Pomona. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. You can learn more about Cal Humanities at calhum.org. My name is Alex Madva, and as director of the California Center for Ethics and Policy, or CCEP, and on behalf of the CCEP faculty fellows co-organizing Securing Justice, namely Brady Collins, Corey Aragon, and Michael Wu, we are pleased to bring you our final event on housing. First, I'd like to encourage you to visit our website, and I'm putting the link in the chat now where you can sign up for our mailing list and then stay in the know about all our upcoming events. Uh, speaking of which, before I introduce today's speaker, I wanted to let you know that we are planning a full lineup of events for the spring 2022 semester, when we will transition from focusing on California housing insecurity to focusing on California's climate crisis. Please save the dates for four panels we are going to host, roughly on the topics of fire, water, air, and land. So uh, these will take place on Friday, January 28th at 12 p.m., where we're going to talk about California's endless wildfire season. Then on February 25th, we'll talk about power, water, and the Golden State. On Friday, March 18th, we'll talk about seeking justice or mitigating harm, the effects of environmental disaster recovery and air pollution. 
And on Friday, April 15th, we'll talk about soil, food, and the ecosystems of California. Also, if you haven't had a chance to check them out yet, the first five episodes of our podcast are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And so I've just dropped into the chat a couple different podcatchers where you can find our podcast. So without further ado, today's presenter is Beto Arcos, a native of Jalapa, Veracruz, Mexico, and now living in LA. He is an independent journalist and storyteller, a frequent contributor to NPR and the BBC, and author of Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. Today, he'll be sharing stories about the intersection of housing and music, covering themes including identity, education, adversity, immigration, women's empowerment, and community building. So on that note, please bring your virtual hands together as I hand the digital mic over to Beto Arcos. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for the invitation, Alex, and, and also, of course, to Mike Wu, who uh, initially put us in contact and, uh, and actually the reason why I'm here. Um, I've been uh, writing about music and culture for a better part of my life, some 20 plus years. Uh, and just in the past year, I published my book called, as uh, Alex just said, Music Stories from the Cosmic Barrio. It's a compilation of uh, 150 stories about music, culture, politics, identity, empowerment of women, immigration, and much more. The storytelling aspect of, uh, of my work has to do with how, uh, first of all, how to tell a story, uh, how to tell a story about a musician, because after all, I work for news organizations, uh, namely National Public Radio and the BBC, and they are always interested in the story behind the art making, the music making. And so every time I pitch a story, I have to come up with ideas as to how to write a story. And um, Every now and then I come across stories that are more than just about music. They're, they are, in a sense, about the human aspect, the, the story of survival, the story of difficulty, the story of adversity, uh, the story of conflict. Uh, sometimes I even uh, came across a story about violence. Uh, and, uh, and I, of course, figure out how to connect the two, music and the story, music and this um, other aspect that sometimes it passes by and people are not familiar with. This is how I came across uh, three stories that I'm gonna talk about today. Uh, and if I, if I can, I will talk about uh, maybe one or two more. Uh, the first one I, I wanna talk about is about a location, a place, a community uh, center, if you will, and that is uh, essential for the fabric of a community in Los Angeles that, that uh, has suffered a lot historically, uh, culturally, and so on, the African-American community. Uh, not far from where I live, actually. I live um, in LA in a, um, in a sense, in a historic place called the Village Green, uh, roughly speaking, about maybe maybe some of you know who I'm talking about because I know there's been groups of students that have come out to visit this place because it's uh, of its unique historic value. Uh, the Village Green is not far from a a place called Lemaire Park, uh, which is a, a, as, a as I said a, a kind of a cultural center, a hub 
for the African-American community and has been for decades. Um, some 30 years ago, uh, um, a drummer of renown um, that played uh, with some of the big names in jazz, Billy Higgins, and um, a poet, uh, Kamau Daoud, uh, who's still around, Billy Higgins passed away a few years ago, Kamau Daoud uh, decided to create a, a center for people to come and play and learn how to play music, specifically jazz, but not just, the, not, not, not just that, also poetry and uh, visual arts and other things. And this place is called the World Stage. Um, the World Stage in Lemaire Park has been this hub for uh, a few uh, a few decades, and um, I just want to briefly read you a little bit of what I wrote to, to give you a sense of, uh, of, of its place in the African-American community. For decades, Lemaire Park has been a cultural hub for LA's African-American arts community, and the world stage is one of its centers, founded by the late jazz drummer Billy Higgins and poet Kamau Daoud. The performance space continues to nurture local artists with weekly educational workshops. And on a Saturday afternoon at the world stage, a group of 20 musicians are playing in a big band jazz workshop led by pianist Billy McCoy, who says, one of the things we have in this workshop, people who are retired, younger musicians who are in college, who come here to learn because it's something they can't find anywhere else. And for the little money that we charge, we char hardly charge anything. Um, they feel that it's the only place where they can learn how to play the blues and how to play jazz. And one of those uh, musicians is Rich Walker, who lives in Duarte. I don't know if you know where Duarte is, but it's, uh, it's far from here. And he plays baritone saxophone He's been attending jazz workshop at the world stage for the past two years. And this is what he said that really touched me. This is probably the only place in Southern California where you can come and hang out with people that are striving to understand the language of bebop. They want to get together and play and study. It's in the African-American community and it's like the focus of art and jazz. And it's just like the real thing. It's the heavy duty learning that you need. Um, and this uh, place, uh, sadly, has been moving around the Lemaire Park area because they have been struggling with funding um, to pay the rent. Uh, they, the last place where I uh, interviewed the, the, the folks at the Lemaire Park at the, at the world stage, which was in July of 2019, was the smallest that I've seen before, that I've ever seen. Uh, I've been to the, the world stage a couple of times before and it was in a different location. It seems as though their locations just got smaller because uh, of the situation with the rent that keeps going higher and higher. And I don't know if you know, but that part of, uh, of the African American community has also been going up in terms of people moving in from other places and people selling out their selling their units, their housing, their houses. And so the, the cost of rent, the cost of living, the cost of real estate has been going up. And so the Lemaire Park area has been going up in 
uh, in rent as well. Um, I was very touched also to find that there's a group of, uh, of women that gets together as well, um, a group of mostly 20 or so African-American community um, women of all ages. They gather in a circle singing and playing African songs. And when I visited them, they were singing an African, South African Zulu song inspired by a spiritual uh, leader called Sangoma. The group is called SHINE, which stands for Sisters Healing, Inspiring, Nurturing, and Empowering. And they're led by instructor Renee Fisher Mims, who started the workshops more than 15 years ago. And she says, we go over the diaspora, we talk about African rhythms, songs, and movement, it's a healing tool, she says. It's a good way of expressing communication. And we get a chance to explore the culture because a lot of the folklore and the medicinal aspect of drumming, not so much as a group, but it works as a therapeutic. And, um, and so we get together as a group and heal together. Uh, and imagine a 77-year-old uh, woman. Her name is Flores Penson. She's the oldest member of this group. And she's been going to the world stage for 15 years. This is what she told me. I call it my stress buster. It's like the feeling and the drumming. It gets to your soul. It's very spiritual. And you could actually just get lost with the drumming. Um, it's like a magnet, if you will. It draws people because of the energy that exudes when a person comes here. It's just the greatest, she says. Um, the world stage recently celebrated its 30th anniversary and executive director Dwight Tribble hopes that the next generation that takes over the space will build on the solid foundation that's been established over the last 30 years. That's a story of the world stage in Lemur Park, uh, a, a place that I, I thought, uh, you know, needed some attention because they've been struggling to find uh, a place that they could call home. It's, they're still renting, uh, but I firmly believe this is the kind of community cultural center that, uh, that should have its own home, uh, that they, they shouldn't be have, you know, have to worry about paying the rent. They, they should have a home. Uh, uh, and uh, and I've, I felt compelled uh, in, in, a, in a sense I felt like I had the responsibility to tell the story of this group, uh, of this cultural center, because of the, the dire situation. I, I'm always, you know, in touch with uh, with the folks who who run it, and and uh, it just so happens that it was all the 30th anniversary, and I thought it was a perfect time to tell their story. Um, are there any questions about uh, this first story? All right, Daniel, you have a question. Yeah, no, I just wanted to ask real quick, like, how did you discover this place? Like, how did you come upon it and find out about this organization? Um, like many of the stories that I, that I do, and, and like I said before, I, I, I've been doing this for uh, more than 20 years. It, it's, always, it's always about relationships. It's always about who you know and, and how you, um, you know, you are in, depending on, on your interests. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a sort of an example. There are 
music journalists who write about music for major um, mainstream organizations, uh, but very few are interested in the human side of the story. Uh, you know, many of them are interested in, in, in sort of the big names and, and, and sort of that, that kind of story. I'm interested in the little, little person. <laughs> I'm interested in, in stories that, uh, in, you know, hopefully somebody that has money when they listen to the story will say, oh, I want to help this organization. I want to donate, you know, without me having to say to them, hey, you, you have money, you should help them. <laughs> you know, I think this is what I think is the power of radio. There's been many stories that I've done over the years um, especially on, on NPR, uh, where, uh, you know, the musician or the producer or the record label said to me, man, you know, thanks to your story, you know, our record is doing better. And I love those, those stories too, you know, but when I find a story like this, I feel like, no, I, I have to tell that story too. So, so I've known about this uh, organization uh, for a number of years, and I've been wanting to tell their story. And I felt like, you know, it's their 30th anniversary. This is a, a good excuse to, to pitch it to my editor. That's super cool. Yeah, thank you for answering. Yeah. Thank you for highlighting the world stage. I have a, I was a jazz musician for a while. My husband is a jazz musician. And I think it's so important that, especially for music like jazz, like the blues, which gets, I mean, for lack of a better word, gentrified in higher ed, if you look at a lot of, music majors, jazz majors who are going to college and learning how to play. I mean, that's a lot of privilege, a lot of money. So places like the world stage where you can go without paying a lot of money and being close to where the young people are, you know, is so important, um, especially for the people of color. I mean, that's where that music came from and it's getting so, you know, commercialized and higher education is so expensive. So no, yeah, it's so important places like that, you know, jam sessions where people can go and actually walk the walk and not just take a lesson at home, you know. So no, thank you so much. It's so important. Yeah, this that's that's a really gr great point that you're making because um, so many musicians, uh, young or older, are interested in learning, but they don't have the means to, mm -hmm. to go <laughs> to Berkeley School of Music. <laughs> they don't have the, the means to go to the Manhattan School of Music. Uh, so this is very important in the community. And that's why I feel like, you know, this is the kind of organization that deserves support of some sort from a, either a big foundation or, 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 or I don't know, uh, someone that could really help this, you know, organization have a, have a home, a permanent home. So they don't have to worry about fundraising every year, like, <laughs> like many organizations like them, you know, I, I certainly hope that, uh, Melinda Gates took notice of them, you know, I would think, and I would hope that they, you know, because she went around the country with her foundation giving money to arts organizations. I hope that, you know, that World Stage uh, got some money. I'm not aware that they did. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, their story is really important. I would uh, like to move to the next story. And this is a story that is, uh, how can I put it? It's a story of, of, of Los Angeles. It's a story of this country. It's the story of immigrants who make something out of nothing. Um, it's the story of, uh, of two band leaders who, uh, let me show you, you have to see the photos here. The photo above is a, um, 
a small, I, I would like to call it an informal yet serious music school in somebody's garage. <laughs> I know it's hard to believe because you guys are going to this high-end, super expensive <laughs> college, <laughs> right? But this is a school to me as well. It's a school for a brass band. Um, I don't know if you know, but uh, there's a great musical tradition of brass bands in, uh, well, all over the world, but we're going to focus in right now in Oaxaca, Mexico. Oaxaca, in the southern part of the country of Mexico, um, has hundreds of brass bands spread out throughout the state, and every year they get together uh, in a kind of a stadium, uh, you know, venue, and they duke it out, so to speak. They play their hearts out for hours on end. Uh, and, uh, and this tradition goes back, you know, more than a hundred years when these instruments became available in, uh, in different communities across, across the country. Um, in Los Angeles, believe it or not, there are some dozen <laughs> brass bands that if you go to their venues to listen, you might think, where am I? <laughs> you might think you're in a different country. In a sense, you are, because this is almost like a reimagining or a reappropriation of the, of, of the space um, with their own traditions, with their own music. Um, I came upon a couple of really touching stories and I wanted to bring them together. Um, and the story was basically called Oaxaca Brass Bands in Los Angeles. Uh, the first one is rather uh, uh, exciting. And at the same time, you think, well, how did that happen? Uh, this musician that I've known for a number of years, his name is Esteban Zuniga, um, is a landscaping uh, gardener you know, for a living. He has his truck and he's got his equipment. I'm sure you've seen many of these uh, folks in your neighborhood, wherever you live, they go around taking care of people's yards, uh, patios, etc. Um, he does that for a living, but he is also a musician. He's a passionate musician. He plays uh, clarinet, he plays guitar, and occasionally he also directs uh, brass bands. I've known about him for a number of years because um, uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, leads a, a band and he was a part of this band in, back in Mexico in Oaxaca. By the way, he's also a, a completely bilingual, bicultural person. He speaks fluent English and he speaks fluent Spanish. Uh, and occasionally he also speaks uh, the language of his, of his mother and grandmother, uh, which is Zapotec. He, I said to him, hey, um, Esteban, so I know you have a band now. You, uh, don't you have a band? You, you've been posting pictures on, on, on social media. Uh, what's up with that? When, you know, when do you rehearse? I said, I'm doing a story about brass bands and I want to see if maybe I can do a story about your band. And he goes, well, you know, I, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm bragging too much about right now, just, but I'm not really uh, ready because we're still rehearsing. We're, we're not ready to play publicly. I've been working with these kids for about three months. And we need at least another three or four months before we can play in public. Because, you know, this is the real stuff. You know, how many brass bands they have, there are in, in LA. And I don't want to, you know, make a fool of myself, you know, with, with kids playing out of tune and all that stuff. I said, okay, well then, you know, when do you think I can go in and you know, check out your rehearsal? And he goes, um, 
how about next month? You know, we'll make a date and you can come over. I said, perfect. I said, I'll, I'll pitch the story to my editor. In the meantime, um, I'll do another, you know, I'll do another story. So I went over to his, uh, to his house, not far from here. You probably know where this is, Pico Boulevard, uh, right between La Brea and uh, Arlington, maybe a little more than that. There's a lot of uh, so Oaxacan businesses and restaurants, and, and he lives not far from there, actually. Uh, I, I showed up one evening around 7 p.m. because he told me he rehearses at night because, you know, all these kids go to school during the day, right? They have to get home, do their homework, and then go to rehearse <laughs> in his house. So when I went in there in the house, he says, actually, we're playing in the back, so come in the back. It turns out it was his garage. <laughs> he had fixed it up like a studio, complete with these soundproof walls. He set up, you know, he had to have a bathroom in there so the kids could use the bathroom and not have to go into his house and that kind of thing. And I, you know, when I sat down with him to interview him, I said, uh, Esteban, so um, how did you do this? He goes, well, that's a long story. I don't know if you want to hear it. I said, I do want to hear it. He says, you know, I was playing in the garage, but it wasn't soundproof. And the neighbors were complaining and they were calling the police on me. <laughs> I said, what? Yeah, they called the police two times and the police came and they shut me down and they told me, look, you have to uh, either stop doing this or do something to your garage so your neighbors don't complain because this thing is too loud. Can you imagine this, this picture that I showed you, there are roughly about 12 kids in there, but sometimes on a, on a regular you know, rehearsal, he could have up to 20 kids in there playing brass instruments. Now, let me tell you what kind of brass instruments they play. They play sousaphone, they play saxophone, tenor, tenor and alto saxophones, clarinets. They also have a couple of drummers, um, trombone. <laughs> uh, so imagine a group of 15 or 20 kids playing brass band music from Oaxaca at about 8 p.m. when you're trying to watch your favorite television show. Probably not too fun, right? So of course, after you got tired of telling your neighbor to shut you know, the heck out, uh, then you call the police and they did. The third time, guess what happened? He was summoned downtown. He had to go to a hearing before a judge. And guess what the judge told him? The judge was nice. The judge said to him, look, either you fix up your garage with something or you stop playing because otherwise I'm going to fine you big time. And I don't think you have the money to pay what I'm going to fine you. Uh, and, you know, plus you don't want to keep coming back here, do you? Um, so he went back and out of his own pocket, he fixed up the garage and made it soundproof. So when I showed up that evening that I showed up, I couldn't hear anything outside <laughs> until I walked into the garage and I realized he had soundproofed the room. Now, why is this happening in Los Angeles? You know, why is it that uh, a, a, this place, which you could, you could almost call a, a community center, a, a school for kids, because the story about these kids is, is 
I, I have to read you something that I wrote and you know in my interviews that I did with I interviewed about three or four of the kids. I interviewed a couple of the parents. Of course, I just interviewed Esteban, the, the band leader. And, um, and I want to read you a little passage, what I wrote about this. Um, Tonight, in that soundproof garage, complete with air conditioning and a bathroom, Zuniga, Esteban Zuniga, teaches a group of 15 students ranging in ages 8 to 16. Saul Martinez is one of Zuniga's students. He's eight years old and he plays soprano saxophone. Norma is Saul's mother. She's been bringing her son to Zuniga's music school for the past 10 months. She says, Saul puts a lot of effort into it, learns more every day and is persistent. She's seen his progress. That's why she keeps bringing him. That and the fact that her son is learning Oaxacan customs and keeping its traditions alive. Esteban Zuniga and other teachers like him are replicating a tradition from Oaxaca called Escoleta, a music school based in a village. Each village has one. The most important thing is that once they have an Escoleta, it's music for everybody in their hometown, basically free. So they can keep passing the musical tradition. That's what Esteban Zuniga told me. That's the story that touches me. That's the story that moves me. That a gardener, that a landscape artist who works day in and day out, taking care of people's rich homes, in Beverly Hills, in the west side of Los Angeles, out of his own pocket, decided to fix his garage to turn it into a music school so that these kids that are supported by 15 to 20 different families can have a place to go and learn an instrument. So questions or comments on this one? <laughs> so has he never had any more um, complaints? Did he No more. Wow, that's really cool. Are there um, like recordings of the performances of the kids or anything like that? Um, there's there's not a, a formal recording per se that they you know they certainly um, perform in various events and um, in fact um, I'm trying to remember that I I myself recommended like the following year you know, when the band was ready to perform, I, I recommended them uh, to perform at the music center. Uh, so they perform at, at uh, you know, events uh, around town, but they haven't really recorded. Uh, there's probably stuff on YouTube, you know, that the, the families probably, uh, you know, they always want to share it uh, with, with everyone. Um, there's some comments, <laughs> very lame neighbors. Well, <laughs> Yeah, someone else said it's a beautiful story. Wish it wasn't necessary, but it's beautiful. Uh, and yeah, that's one dedicated teacher. Um, there is a second second um, story uh, that is part of this um, story that I did. Um, and that's uh, kind of a bigger, if you will, but a bigger story only because the teacher um, actually has taught in the last maybe 15 years, something like 500 kids in the Oaxacan community. Uh, now, keep in mind, when I talk about the Oaxacan community, I talk about the children and the families. 
most of the children were either born here or some of them were brought, uh, you know, uh, early on as, as kids, you know, and some of them probably, uh, I'm sure, are, are sort of the, the dreamers, you know, if you know what I'm talking about, the dreamer types. So that were, that were brought here, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. But this, this particular teacher, his name is uh, Stanislao Makeos, has been um, teaching for about roughly 15 years now. I met him um, some, yeah, roughly about a couple of years after he arrived here, I met him uh, through a friend because uh, at the time I was uh, working with a singer that, that some of you might know, her name is Lila Downs. Uh, she's sort of a well-known singer from Mexico. And, and she's from Oaxaca, so she, I used to be her co-manager. So one day she asked me if, uh, if I knew of a brass band that could play with her at her concert in Los Angeles. And so I found this, uh, this, this brass band and through a friend. And that's how I learned about you know, how widespread the brass band uh, culture was in, in Oaxaca. And as I said before, now there's a, something like 12 to 15 brass bands uh, all over uh, combined LA and, and Orange County. Um, so this teacher has a, um, a location, actually. He has a place where he teaches uh, students uh, almost every day. Um, and he has his own sort of, out of the teaching that he does with all the students, he formed his own uh, band and he calls it uh, Mateo's Music Academy, just like that in English, Music Academy Band. Um, uh, his daughter actually is now also a director. She directs the, 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 the brass band when, when he's busy doing stuff. Um, so here's the story. He, uh, he came to LA undocumented. Um, he, um, you know, worked in odd jobs for a while and, until, uh, until he figured out how he could teach because he was the music director of a band in his hometown. And um, when things got difficult that he couldn't support his family, he decided uh, to move to LA. And, uh, and he thought, you know, he could probably do the same as, as he did back, back home. But, but it took him a couple of years to establish himself. So he's been also moving around uh, that area of Pico Boulevard in different locations. Uh, he was up at one point, he was on Washington Boulevard uh, and now he's at this location. Uh, it's sort of a storefront uh, place. It's at the corner of um, Normandy and Pico Boulevard, about a block from that, uh, from from Normandy, uh, west of west of um, west of Normandy on Pico Boulevard. It's it's called Maceo's Music Academy. Um, it's a big place. It's owned by some, I think he told me the owner is Armenian American. And I, I had to ask him, I said, how much do you pay a month for this massive location? Because this is not a garage, just like I, the story before. This is like a big warehouse. I mean, when you walk in, it's a big space. And he says, I pay $5,000 a month. <laughs> I, I said to him, really? I said, how do you do this? And he goes, 
well, you know, the, the families uh, are paying me, you know, they pay for the education of their, of their kids. And so they're the ones that are helping me pay the rent. He says, without them, it's impossible to do it. So, so he has uh, probably up to 50 to 100 students on and off that pay, you know, every month for their kids' education. And that's the money that helps pay for the rent, the supplies, and of course, the, the salary of this, uh, of this teacher. And I don't, know, I don't know to this day if he actually has papers yet, okay? Because he was here, like I said, 15 years ago, and I don't, I don't know if he managed to get legal or not. So it's, it's a story that, uh, that's yet to be told. But on a given night, like I did, I showed up, they were rehearsing, you know, uh, there were, let me just show you a picture and see if you, can, if you can see it. There's the room, there's one side of the room. It's, as you can tell, there's a lot of depth in there. So it's a big place. Um, and I think that's his daughter um, directing the, the, the band. Um, but, you know, this is a band that has, you know, eight clarinets, you know, uh, seven alto saxophones, you know, two sousaphones, <laughs> you know, two drummers. It's a big brass band. And they're, and they're very, very popular around town because they, they participate in all the festivities, uh, you know, Oaxaca-related festivities, uh, you know, patron saints and so on. Um, so I, I showed up one night when they were rehearsing. And it is loud in there because that you know there's there's some soundproofing in there, but they don't have to worry about the neighbors because it's a business area. So, um, uh, but they there was also a, a ballet folklorico dancing as they were playing because this is music that's dance to dance to. It's not music to listen to. I mean, you can listen to it too as well, but there's a folk dance group dancing to to the music because they play music from all over the state of Oaxaca and each region of Oaxaca, if you're not familiar with that, they have their own dance, their own traditional dances. So they were dancing in different, you know, costumes and so on. Um, so let me tell you a bit of the story of what I wrote about uh, Maestro Maqueos, I call him Maestro. Two miles from Zuniga's garage, a storefront on Pico Boulevard, it's Maqueos Music Academy, home to a 30-piece brass band and a large dance troupe. They're rehearsing for a traditional music and dance festival called Gelaguetza. Stanislao Maqueos was director of his hometown's municipal brass band. He moved to LA in 2000. After a few years working odd jobs and gaining the respect of the local Oaxacan community, he established his music school. Since then, he's helped form several brass bands. He says, it's difficult for the children because they were born here and it's another culture that we're imposing on them. Mateo says, we're imposing our children to play our music and it's hard, but after so much persistent, persistence, they do learn to love our Oaxacan music. They dance to it and they make it their own. Mateo says, the goal is to keep their children, the goal is to help their children find their identity. Even though they were born in this country, their roots are in Oaxaca. The roots of their parents are there. And part of their identity is this music. 
Oaxacan brass bands play all kinds of private and public events from religious processions to dance festivals. There are people who call Maceo's Music Academy the hotbed of brass bands in Los Angeles. In 17 years, Maceo's music, Maceo's, Maestro Maceo's has taught more than 500 students. <laughs> Still, he says, he has bigger dreams. I wanna have a big band with strings, a complete symphonic orchestra. <laughs> there you have it. Another story about housing in LA and how, you know, I mean, who's going to help support this brass band? It's a community center. It's funded by the parents and that's how they, these traditions survive in Los Angeles. Any comments or questions? So when was the last time you were in touch with him? I've been in touch occasionally. Um, in fact, uh, you know, every few months, uh, I'd, I've driven past it. The, the school is still there. Um, in fact, um, I don't know the date, but they're supposed to be in, like, I think it might be this weekend or next weekend. There is a big festival of brass bands in LA at some location in South LA. Um, it's sort of a battle of the bands. Uh, I think something like six to eight brass bands get together and they play, you know, separately. And then at the end, they, they all play together. You can imagine <laughs> six or eight brass bands playing all together, more than a hundred uh, musicians. <laughs> and how old will the, the, the kids be in that, like all ages. hundred musicians? All yeah, ages. all ages. Yeah, there. I mean, I've seen there are brass bands that are you know sort of grown ups, you know, older adults. Uh, there are band bands that they look more like you know late teens, pre college type ages. And I've seen you know bands with you know with kids that are like Esteban's band, uh, eight years, ten years old. So yeah, all kinds. Uh, and by the way, a lot of women too. There are a lot of girls in, in these bands. They're not just a men's, you know, men, men's bands. There, there's a lot of women. I don't know if you noticed in the picture, but there are several, uh, several young women in the in the in both bands, in the in Esteban's and in Mateos's band. So yeah. I'm just trying to imagine a hundred like 10-year-olds all playing brass band at the same time. Yeah. And that would be an interesting sound. That would be awesome. I've been to I, I've been to one of these gatherings uh, some five years ago. It, it was unbelievable. Let me just say that uh, unbelievable that this sort of thing is happening in Los Angeles, but it's in this community. Nobody knows about them, you know, other than they their own community. It's parents and relatives, and everyone there obviously speaks Spanish only. I mean, you can go in there and if you're not from that community, you're going to be noticed. What's that guy doing there? I'm even noticed, even though I'm, I'm Mexican. I showed up, you know, with my microphone or whatever. Uh, immediately people realized that I'm not one of them, so to speak. <laughs> Are the musical students directly taught about their Oaxacan roots or is it mainly through the study of music? It's mostly through the study of music because uh, they're taught, you know, this particular piece of music is played in this region and this is the type of dance that uh you know that it applies to and of course now you have to understand 
as I mentioned, Oaxaca has about 16 different regions, cultural regions. And what I mean by that is every region is different from another. Uh, they don't have the same dances and they don't have the same gastronomy. They don't have the same traditions. They have different traditions, different saints, different festivities. Now, all of them have something in common. They celebrate the Day of the Dead at the same time, the same time of the year. They, that's in common. They all celebrate the Virgin of Guadalupe. You know, they all have something in common, but they all have their separate saints and festivities that they organize and play, you know, where these, where these bands play. And here's a comment from Allison who says, and they're filling gaps in the regular curriculum. There's not enough music arts taught in American schools at all, let alone culturally specific community building. This is so heartening. I couldn't add more to that comment. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, you, you probably know about YOLA, the Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles, because it's supported and funded by the LA Phil, the Los Angeles Philharmonic. That's another great um, you know, way in which kids with you know, little, uh, little access to, you know, with, with no, or no access to big schools, they learn uh, about classical music. In, in different you know, places where they, um, I did a story about them and it's actually in the book. Uh, I did about a story about Yola. I, I even interviewed the, the rock star of the LA Phil, Gustavo Dudamel. And he couldn't be more proud. Let me tell you that. Couldn't be more proud of the fact that there are you know, such uh, uh, important programs in, in, in Los Angeles and that Yola is, is part of you know, the LA fabric now. You can't think of the LA Phil now without this uh, youth orchestra. I don't know if anybody has seen them, but they are absolutely amazing musicians, all of them. I mean, that, uh, when I heard them play Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or, or, uh, or even compositions by Latin American composers, I said, geez, who needs the LA Phil? <laughs> they were amazing. Uh, when I went to, to interview uh, the musicians in Yola for my story, uh, uh, you know, I, I, and I listened to the rehearsal, I was astounded. It was just fantastic to see all of these, you know, teenagers playing Saint-Saëns or Beethoven or uh, Strauss. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's incredible. But it's also incredible to see, you know, the mom and pop, if you will, uh, music schools. Um, and by the way, this is just one music school in LA that I've been in touch with. I also attended another type of music school, which is not quite a music school, but it's a cultural organization, which is the Los Angeles Balalaika Orchestra. Remember the instrument here? Actually, this is a gift from one of the musicians of the Balalaika Orchestra, because I did a story about them for a program called The World out of Boston. It's a news program, uh, international. That's also a, a community effort. They rehearse of all places at the uh, Russian Orthodox Church uh, on Melrose and Fountain or you know, up there in, in East Hollywood. I don't know if you, anybody's been to that part of, of the city, um, but they rehearsed there at this, at this Ukrainian Russian church. And that's where I found them when I went to interview them some years ago. Uh, it was really something special to see this uh, Russian orchestra playing these crazy looking instruments like this thing. Uh, or, or the bass balalaika. Um, so I'm a big fan of these cultural community centers because they are 
so important in the fabric of of a city and and again you know they don't have their own community center they play and rehearse at a church <laughs> so uh thank you beto for telling the story would you say that this kind of music is difficult to learn for someone who isn't familiar no it's not it's i mean any musician really can learn uh, how to play um i'll tell you something that my wife says we are all artists everyone can play an instrument and anyone can learn music from anywhere we all have a talent as human beings to to be able to to do something artful with our souls so um i mean that's that's a bigger answer to your question but but everyone can play this music yeah um it's uh it's it's not something that that you have to be culturally specific specific um but yeah i i haven't seen most of the most of the kids in those bands in those oaxacan brass bands are are kids from those communities uh from the oaxacan community um i haven't noticed anybody that's there outside of that community uh, but who knows maybe they become big big and big and bigger that they start to spread around you know other communities that would be great i think that's great so uh by the way the ukrainian the, the balalaika orchestra does have musicians from the latino community <laughs> so there's a lot of americans of maybe russian uh you know ethnicity if you will maybe russian americans or ukrainian americans but I, that night i went to uh, to to see them rehearse I, I I asked one of the one of the musicians I interviewed. I said, "So it looks like you have folks from the Latino community." And they go, "Of course, of course, our music is can be played by anybody." Yeah, and there were there was there was a, a young like a teenage girl, maybe fourteen, fifteen years old, and there was also a guy in there. Uh, so there was about two or three, not many, but there were Latinos playing in the balalaika orchestra. <laughs> I just thought that was that was fantastic. Um, anything else any other comment um i'll move to the third story and the third story is is about a little bit related to the pandemic and and uh what happened in the past year and who knows maybe the reason we're even here together today um it, it's it's related to uh LA historic um shop a music shop it's called Candela's Guitar Shop. Um and when I'm going to talk about this guitar shop I'm also going to talk about uh, a story that is a sort of uh connected to this story because of the strings of of instruments uh, that are manufactured by another business that has moved around LA because of this difficulty of finding uh, a location uh, that is inexpensive so they could make a living making strings for instruments like all of these in fact i have several instruments that are, the strings were made by this particular um entrepreneur business um but let's talk about candela's guitar shop uh candela's guitar shop was founded by two brothers who came here from northern mexico back in the in the 1940s 50s uh so the the shop has been around that long uh, it's it's in a sense a kind of a historic institution in LA uh Candelas uh, makes instruments and has made instruments for bands like 
Los Lobos, um, musicians from all over the place, um, musicians, renowned musicians have had their instruments made there, some of them from Mexico, a couple of them from Spain, um, famous guitarists, uh, and so on. So they, their thing is making guitars. They make their luthiers. Uh, so and now it is in the third generation. Uh, it's owned and run by um, the grandson of one of the two brothers. And um, he essentially felt that he, he was left with this kind of institution and he learned the trade. He learned how to make guitars, how to be a luthier. And he felt uh, that he had a responsibility to carry on his father's and his uncle's uh, tradition of, of guitar making in LA and uh, uh, no matter what. So before, uh, before his father, um, his, his uncle died a couple of decades ago. And so the, the, his father, um, his, his last name is um, Delgado. Um, his father left him the business. And, uh, and when he died some 20 years ago, and, and he basically told him, you know, I, I want you to continue. Since now you know how to make guitars, I want you to continue with the business. So, you know, you got to promise me that you're going to keep it alive. Uh, and the best thing about it is that his father and uncle, they bought a building. They bought a, a place where this uh, in, institution, where this shop was going to remain. And it's right in the heart of East L.A., uh, on Cesar Chavez Boulevard, um, between uh, it's Cesar Chavez near Mott, which is a very kind of a historic corner right there, uh, as in um, you know back in the day, in that corner of Mott and Cesar Chavez was the the place called the Paramount. Paramount was the or the Paramount Ballroom. And you might wonder, why is it called the Paramount Ballroom? Is it related to Paramount Pictures? Yes, it was. Um, it was the Paramount Ballroom owned by none other than Rita Hayward's father, <laughs> Eduardo Cancino. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that building. Uh, uh, back in the day, uh, in the, at the turn of the 20th century, that building was the home of uh, of. Uh, a famous Jewish bakery. And it was also the home of the Union of Bakers of Los Angeles. Uh, uh, and uh, the famous writer Upton Sinclair had an office <laughs> in that building. Uh, it was also the place where major musicians came from all over the country to play there because they couldn't play in downtown but they could play in East LA. Can you imagine uh, seeing for the first time Stevie Wonder when he was about 16 years old? He came to play in LA because he's not from here. I don't know if you know, he, he, he was from, I think he was from Detroit or somewhere in the Midwest. He played and his debut was there at the Paramount Ballroom uh, and countless other names. Uh, Sonny and Cher, I think played at one point. 
you know, some lesser known names of music before they became famous, started playing there at the Paramount Ballroom. Uh, it was the place to be, it was the place to play. And so nearby is where Candela's Guitar Shop, perfect place, right, to, 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 to start your business, to, to continue your business. They bought this building. But last year, uh, the owner of Candela's Guitar Shop uh, was really worried. So I contacted him and I said, hey, um, what's going on? He says, uh, he says I, I, I don't know, Beto, he says, but um, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my business. Uh, I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to be struggling because I, I can't afford, you know, um, to have the business anymore. He says, you know, it's my, the building is, is owned by the shop, by me, you know, because of my father. But sadly, he says, um, the, the business is, is gone. He says, I don't, I don't have people are coming to buy instruments. And, and so he got really worried. So let me tell you a little bit of what I wrote. Um, this business has been seriously threatened. Delgado says the regular clientele included musicians who came to the store for strings, accessories, and repairs, but that side of his business has dried up. All of that is gone, he said. The things that are keeping me busy right now are the custom orders that I've had on backlog. And that's about it. Since the pandemic shut Candela's uh, guitar shop doors more than two months ago, Delgado says he's been building more classical and flamenco guitars and he's doing more restoration work. Tomas Delgado says that the daily income he's been losing over the past two months will never be recovered. My grandpa, my dad made me promise that I would keep the hours and keep the business going, but this revenue, we're never going to get it back, he says. It's gonna be a long-term effect on my small business and I'm sure everybody else's. And when he said everybody else, um, I immediately think of another business uh, owned by uh, Jacob Hernandez, uh, not far, something like a, a two miles from that business, also in Cesar Chavez in a side street uh, is, is a, another little uh, business called Guadalupe Custom Strings. Uh, the business is owned by Jacob Hernandez. He's a Mexican-American uh, musician entrepreneur and he's owned Guadalupe custom strings for maybe about 15 years or so he's been manufacturing strings for all kinds of traditional instruments for more than 15 years moving from one place to another as rent keeps going up all over East LA I, I don't think I need to tell you because you probably know about what's been happening in East LA and Boyle Heights in terms of gentrification there's even a, a Netflix series about it <laughs> uh, gen gentified is it called gentified i think it's called um and um and that's that's another story i've known of four places four locations where candelas uh, where uh, guadalupe custom strings has been <laughs> in the last 15 years i've been to every one of them because uh Every time there's a musician that comes from Spain or Mexico that I'm friends with, and, and I give him a little tour of LA so they can see some locations. I always, you know, if they're guitar, the guitar music, you know, guitarists, I take him to, to Guadalupe Custom Strings so they can, you know, get some strings, some handmade strings for their guitars. 
And they're of course amazed to see because typically when you go visit them, they're making strings uh, right there in front of you. Right now they are in probably the smallest location that I've seen them um, since they've moved around for the last 15 years, 16 years. <laughs> this is almost like, it's a room probably smaller than the room that I'm in right now, which is roughly, it's about 15 feet by 15. <laughs> and they have the, the, the laid, you know, the, the place where they make, they, they rotate the strings to make them. And they have all their supplies on, the, on one side and they have a table where they work uh, some stuff, but not much more than that. I mean, luckily it's a business that can be, you know, in a small uh, room, uh, but it shouldn't be that way, right? I mean, they should be able to display, you know, the strings and instruments, they should have uh, more than that, but they can't because this is a little room they rent behind a, a car shop <laughs> in the very back. There's not even a sign that says Guadalupe well, Custom Strings in the back because that's a mechanic shop. So uh, last time I went to visit him, that's where he was. And this is, you know, before the pandemic. Uh, so no, I, I actually interviewed him. Uh, yes, before the pandemic, because and I remember when I interviewed him for a story that I did about them um, along with the Candela's Guitar Shop for KPCC, uh, he sent me his replies by WhatsApp uh, messaging. Um, so there's another story about difficulty of surviving uh, businesses during this particular time that we're living in. And uh, last time I, I went to visit Candela's Guitar Shop uh, in, on Cesar Chavez in East LA, uh, he, he had a smile on his face. You know, he was very happy. Uh, he was even, you know, offering me to, to do an event for my book uh, in the back. Uh, but, you know, obviously because of the pandemic, we just haven't maybe next year done anything. But he wants to do like a, you know, maybe do like a little concert with some musicians and then do a book talk and, and sell my book and that kind of thing. Um, but he's doing well. Uh, business picked up, you know, things opened up, as you know. And uh, little by little, he started to, to pick up his business. Musicians started returning to, to buy. And, uh, and he also managed to get um, one of these loans that the federal government was uh, giving to, to businesses. He wasn't successful in the first round last year because as you can imagine, everybody went, I don't know, you're probably familiar with those loans, right? That the, that the government uh, was handing out and they were not, um, you didn't need to pay them if you couldn't pay them back. Um, so, so he applied the first time around and he says, forget it. I, I, I just couldn't do it in time and, and the money dried up, <laughs> but the second time around, um, he, I think, I think his accountant or somebody that helps with him, uh, with his, you know, business, the money stuff, uh, managed to, to get uh, one of those loans and, and help them pay some bills. Cause he had laid off some people, you know, so things are doing better for him. And, um, like I said, the last time I visited uh, Guadalupe Custom Strings, um, he was doing fine because you know he doesn't need to to have a any any bigger than what he is than the, what he is right now, and uh, and he's continuing to uh, to make strings just like before. So, um, anything else? Any more uh, comments? Um, that's 
sort of the, the last story that I planned, um, but I, I'm hoping that we can converse, uh, Alex. Yeah, was he able to hire back some of the people that he had to let go? You know, I haven't asked him yet. Um, I do know that, um, you know, the, he, he kept one person uh, employed. She's uh, sort of the person that runs the shop and, and, you know, opens the shop and closes the shop because he's always in the back working on, on instruments. So he's not attending, you know, the front. Um, but he's doing fine. He's, like I said, he's uh, definitely uh, survived the worst part of it, which was in the middle of last year when it was really dire. Yeah, thanks for sharing these really beautiful and powerful stories. You know, I, another thought I have now is I think, um, I think our students and other folks here would be really interested to know what life is like for you as a freelance journalist and storyteller and, you know, speaking about, you know, talking about insecure employment and stuff like that and uh, how, what it's like being independent, you know? Uh, I've been uh, doing this for, oh God, more than 20 years. Um, I, you know, I've been lucky enough that, um, you know, my, my partner, my wife works uh, at the music center and uh, she's, she's got a great job and, uh, you know, has obviously has been able to, to, to help, you know, support the family all this, all these years. Uh, we have a, a son that just graduated last uh, June from uh, Santa Clara University up in the Bay Area. He recently, about a month ago, he started, finally got a job full time at Santa Clara University. Uh, we couldn't be more, more happy. Um, and as far as me, you know, I, it's funny, I, I found myself wondering what I was going to do during the pandemic, because most of my work was about music stories uh, for NPR, for KPCC. Sadly, KPCC's uh, management, and I can understand, you know, of course, they canceled two shows uh, where I was doing all my stories about music. Uh, one was called The Frame. That was canceled. Uh, I think the last show aired somewhere in March of last year. They said it was temporary, but I mean, I don't, I don't see, I don't see it coming back. Uh, all the all the folks that were working on the show were either let go. There was about six, I think, folks that were producing that show. They were let go, or they had to move to other departments because obviously there were more uh, important stories to be told than. <laughs> entertainment or music everybody had to focus on the pandemic and you know uh, the economy etc so so they they uh, they canceled the show and and this had to happen the next show uh was canceled they said that was because the host you know got a job at npr the uh, former host of uh, of the the program is called take two with a martinez uh, that show was also canceled as soon as he left he got a job as one of the hosts of morning edition on npr and the show was canceled because he was the show <laughs> so that's that's gone they said that there's they're going to come back with a new show in in january i, I have no idea but my stories were airing on those two programs so i haven't done a story for kpcc since june of last year <laughs> it's been a while so um to kind of complete the, the answer to your question. So what I did in August of last year, I, I decided that I wanted to do a book. 
and I, I figured out how to do the book. I, I decided to compile you know, the stories that I've done over the years for NPR, for the world, for the BBC, and for KPCC. I obviously selected out of 300 something stories that I've done over the years, I decided to, to select uh, 150 stories. And I put them together in, uh, in, this, in this book. Um, and I published this uh, on my own through a publisher in Mexico. So the book, interestingly, the book was published in Mexico in English. Uh, and then I self-published it in the US. Uh, I think somebody put that, I don't know if you, that was you, Alex, the link on Amazon. Um, don't, go, don't go to Amazon. I can, if, if anybody's interested, um, I can sell you the book. <laughs> and I have two versions, one in English and one in Spanish. Um, and not, not only that, it'll be cheaper. And much better because the one on Amazon is, um, doesn't have any photos. This one has 180 something photos. See, every story has a photograph so you can kind of see what the, the, you know, the musicians look like. And, and there's, you know, obviously each photo tells a lot of stories, but uh, all the stories have photographs of the musicians. Um, and, uh, and the book on Amazon doesn't have that. So. If anyone's interested, um, Alex, uh, if, if you don't mind, I'd love to share my email um, with folks. And, uh, and you can, you know, certainly let me know and I'll sign it and dedicate it to you even better. <laughs> Sounds like a great Christmas present. Um, <laughs> funny you should say that. Um, I'm actually doing a... Uh, after this, this afternoon, I'm doing a, a, a talk. Uh, the Fender Foundation, you know, Fender, the, the music instrument company, um, because of an interview that aired on NPR back in March about my, my book, uh, the, the director of education for the Fender Foundation uh, reached out to me and said, Beto, um, you know, we'd love to, love to buy some books for, for Fender, for our employees. So they bought 50 books from me. And then they said, you know, can you give a talk about music to our, uh, our, our employees? And I said, absolutely, you know, anything. What would you like me to talk about? And she goes, Latin music. I said, fine. I've been doing this for, you know, 10 years. I've been giving lectures at the State Department for the Foreign Service Institute. And, uh, and so, yeah, I can talk about pretty much anything Latin. No problem. Uh, Mexican music, I'm there. <laughs> You know, music in the U.S. that's Latin, happy to do that. So I've been doing talks for them. And this afternoon, I'm doing a talk for teachers that work at LA Unified um, in person uh, at the City Club downtown. Uh, I'm doing a talk about uh, musicians in Los Angeles and uh, that specifically play uh, guitars or bass. Um, and, uh, and the foundation uh, bought 35 books to give as gifts you said it, uh, Alex, to give us gifts to the teachers that are going to be uh, there this afternoon. So, um, so yeah, you know, if you want the, the Spanish version, I don't know if anybody here uh, is bilingual, but the Spanish version is cool, too. Uh, it's a different cover, and um, it's got a discography of 300 titles, if you're into music, and... Um, it's uh, it's it's a obviously it's a different book because it's in Spanish, 
but um, it's also available. And again, don't go to Amazon. <laughs> Happy to sell it to you. So um, that's it for me. Uh, I wish that people would um, converse or you know comment about anything about music because I can go on for for hours. <laughs> We actually have another question in the chat from Emily that follows on some of what you were talking about, about your experiences during the pandemic. I appreciate how you make it accessible for people to be interviewed. I'm especially thinking about how you let one person you interviewed to send responses to what's up. With this pandemic, it can be difficult for people to meet face to face. Has it been a challenge for you to share these stories during a time like this? Yeah, um, you know, that's a good question. Uh, what I did last year since Zoom and, and you know, social media became so vital for uh, so many people. When, when we all sort of went into lockdown, what I did is um, I started a series of, um, for lack of a better word, shows on, on social media. Uh, so instead of, you know, doing stories for NPR, which I didn't do that many, last year I think I did uh, three stories on NPR only because of, again the situation um and and then I, I think i did about three or four for the bbc because of that i decided to do um interviews by youtube and facebook so my nephew who's a millennial and is brilliant about social media and all of that stuff he helped me from mexico he's based in, in mexico uh, he helped me uh organize you know do a, my youtube channel and and he would be he was always like I don't know who is handling this uh, technical aspect of it, Alex, but he was that person for me in Mexico. So I, I would, you know, connect all the artists. And so I interviewed artists from Spain, Colombia, Panama, um, Ecuador, definitely Mexico. Uh, there was a, an interview with a Cuban pianist. Um, and so I did this, you know, sort of interviews on, uh, on on social media so so that i i was active doing stuff and then of course my book project became kind of like the thing to do so i stopped pretty much doing that in september when i decided to work you know full time on putting my book together and um, and the book came out and and thankfully it's been doing well <laughs> uh, it's been selling the english version has been selling more than the spanish version but I mean, that's, you know, who knows about that market? <laughs> it's, it's a new territory to me. So thank you for asking. Uh, it's been challenging, but not, I mean, I, I've been busy. I, I've been doing stuff. So I'm, I'm happy that, uh, that, you know, the pandemic brought some good things. And that one of the things is this book. <laughs> so, and different ways of, you know, connecting with people. So I'm, I'm happy about that. And just like today, we're, we're connecting you know, with, with you. And, uh, and I'm, I'm happy that you appreciate, you know, what, what I'm doing and, and, uh, and the stories that I'm telling. Thank you. Comments, questions. Let's see. Can you speak more on the connection between identity and music? How might music being empowering for youth growing up in Los Angeles? Okay. Emily. Um, let's see identity wow that's a great question and it's a question i can spend quite a bit of time talking about music and identity i 
um, I found that identity is much more than meets the eye. It's much more than I'm Mexican. It's much more than I'm, you know, this, or I'm Mexican American. It's much more than that. It's, it's about who you are based on everything that you grew up with and that you are today thanks to all of those influences growing up. I actually address identity in my book um, quite a bit. In fact, uh, the biggest chapter uh, is called Identity. It's the book opening. It's the, it's the opening of the book. And there are more than 20 stories about identity in this, uh, in this book. Um, for example, I'll give you just one example. Armenian music in the USA is not what you think it is. Uh, one thing I learned over the years is that Armenian music was influenced very heavily by American music, uh, both here and in Armenia, because you may not know this, Armenia was part of the Soviet empire back in the day. It was a communist country. It was a country under the you know, uh, direction of the Soviets. And they imposed uh, a communist government, uh, you know, in, in Armenia. And so when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Berlin Wall fell down in 1989, uh, Armenians freed themselves as well. Just like every other country in the Soviet sphere, um, they, they became free of, you know, whatever they wanted to do. Uh, you know, and, uh, and so I learned one thing from Armenian musicians uh, living here in Los Angeles. They told me that jazz, <laughs> remember we, we talked about jazz with the Lambert Park, that jazz was actually the way in which they could express themselves freely more than any other music. <laughs> and so many musicians went to jazz uh, as, a, as a way of expressing their freedom during the times of the Soviet, um, you know, uh, control, uh, uh, you know, of the communist control back then. And, uh, and so as a result, uh, jazz is very popular in Armenia, but also here in the U.S. with Armenian musicians. Uh, I met a, uh, a young pianist here in Los Angeles. Um, so... And, and she, you know, she told me about this part of the story of Armenian music. And, uh, and then at the, at the same time, she told me about uh, these uh, medieval singers that live uh, in, in the Van Nuys area where there's an Armenian Orthodox church. And, they, and she participates in these rituals of singing these, you know, ancient medieval songs <laughs> from these musicians. And so she's influenced by Armenian ancient music and American music, jazz. So uh, that's one way in which identity, uh, to me, says more than I'm Armenian, you know, says more than I'm Mexican. Um, 
you know, everything that you see here, for example, in these, you know, in these instruments is what defines me. I know it's very complicated, but, uh, but we are more than meets the eye. And so to, to, I hope I answered a little bit of, of your question, but, but identity to me is, is so much more than, than that. And, and I address it in so many different ways in this book, uh, in, the, in the first chapter uh, with all these stories. Let's go to the next one. Um, so uh, Melanie asked, had it always been a goal for you to write a book? And, uh, and then Henry also asked me, I asked what part of your job as a music journalist was the best part in your view? Okay. I've been wanting to write a book for about five years uh, to, to, to actually say, okay, you know, this is me. Uh, the stories aired and, and they were gone, right? You listen to the radio, you listen to it now, it's gone, right? After you hear the story, it's gone. It'll stay with you if, if somebody, if the, if the story touched you, it will stay with you. But I felt like I wanted to have something physical. I mean, it, it sounds a little macabre to say this, but what the heck? I felt like, you know, if I die tomorrow, there's a book I left. <laughs> I know there's stories out there in the ether, you know, and people can go online and, and put my name on Google and say Beto Arcos. You know, their story, you can hear all these stories I did, you can hear them. But uh, I think it's another thing is just to have a book, something physical that I see, like, it's like a record, you know, like an album, uh, uh, you know, for musicians. Yeah, you record it, it is digital, and you put it on the cloud, and it's up there, and that's that. But another thing is to have a physical record. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I was here, here's my record of what I did. And so that's, that's one of the reasons that I, why I decided to do it. And the second one is because I felt that so many of these stories are still relevant today. I mean, all of the stories that I selected, I felt like they had some relevance still today and that many of them were not listened to by a lot of people. And I felt like they also read well as stories because they're so short. I mean, all these stories you can read in two or three or four minutes. You can just pick up the book anywhere. Uh, you know, there's no order per se. There's a, you know, there are 12 chapters, but you can't really, um, you know, you, you don't really have the story from the, the start from the beginning. You can go in the back and, and read about music in Argentina or, or you know, or, or music in, in Los Angeles or music in, in Spain or, or, or Tunisia, for example. So uh, it, it's, I felt like I wanted to, to share that, that power of music in a different way. And, and that's why I did it. But thank you. Thank you for asking. Uh, the next one is what? Uh, by Henry, is it? Thank you for telling the stories. May I ask, what's, what part of your job as music journalist was the best part in your view? And what gives you hope for the future? Uh, and inclusion for all ethnicities to continue this legacy of music in our communities. That's a great question. Um, uh, the best part of me as a journalist is is really telling a story that someone is compelled to, to do something about it, you know, to touches them in such a way. Even if it's just, oh, I just heard that story by, about this singer. I want to get that record. Or I want to listen to that music. See, even if, even if that is the only thing that that person does, that's, I've done my job. See, so the satisfaction of knowing that people listen to a story is the best 
thing that I can get as a journalist is that people listen to it. People read it. Thank you. <laughs> this is good. But when something transcendent actually happens, uh, I can't begin to tell you how I feel. I've cried sometimes when something really moving happened because of a story. Um, uh, let me tell you just quickly one, one thing that happened. Um, there, there was a, a Vietnamese, there's a Vietnamese musician based in, in the Bay Area in, in San Jose. And, uh, and I, I did a, a review of her um, music on an NPR program um, on the weekend called All Things Considered. Uh, it was a group of four or five artists uh, that I included in that. Uh, it was all about the music of California or something like that. And so the host interviewed me and I talked about each musician. Um, so that aired on, you know, all things considered. It was listened to by, you, you, you know, you guess five, six, seven million people in 50 states across the USA and not to mention in Europe, et cetera. So millions listen to this story. Um, the next week I get an email from the musician herself who said, Beto, I can't thank you enough. Um, because of, of your review of my music, I got a gig in a, in a performing arts center in the Midwest. And I can't thank you enough. And that to me is significant, you know, that that someone listened to the story of this Vietnamese immigrant whose, whose music is all about music on the other side of the planet, <laughs> you know, and someone listened to it that wanted to program something special or different in their performing arts center in the Midwest. I mean, what can I say? <laughs> That's very, very touching to me. Um, you know, and, and when an artist, for example, I did a story just a couple of weeks ago about a singer-songwriter from Colombia, from the coffee region of Colombia. Um, she uh, did a, an album of children's music during the pandemic now, last year. She put it out, you know, let's see what happens. I love the album. I listened to it and I reviewed it for a Spanish language um, on online magazine and i said what a great album you know what a great thing it feels like this very sacred space where people of all ages not just kids can listen to it and and just find themselves enchanted in this kind of this is what we need right now during the pandemic you know we needed something to 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 bring us home to take us home to make us feel nurtured taken care of just like you did with your children you know that's, that's what I told her. Um, I did a story about her for NPR, finally, because her album was nominated for a Latin Grammy. And I said, that's, that's it. That's the excuse I needed so I can pitch it to my editor. And my editor, I'd be surprised if he said no. Sure enough, my editor said, yes, I did a story. I interviewed her. The story aired. And um, she has now way more, more listeners now on Spotify, her record was on the top of Amazon children's music on iTunes. It was at the very top of children's music. That to me says something before that nobody knew who she was. <laughs>
So there is my satisfaction right there. Uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, I feel like I've done my job when something like that happens. So we have time for more questions? Absolutely. No, I think that's, uh, I think on that note, it's time to uh, please join me in a virtual celebration and expression of gratitude to Beto Arcos for such a wonderful presentation. This was so cool, um, really powerful and moving, and uh, we were really lucky to have you. So thanks. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, uh, Mike Wu, for the invitation. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm thrilled uh, and I'm happy to talk about the things that I care about anytime. So, so thank you so much. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit calhum.org for more. Once again, please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast app. This helps other people find the show. Thanks for listening.